Hello and welcome to the Phileas Club, the show where we get people from around the world to tell you how they saw the news from the past month or so. This is episode number 41 for November 2011. Hello everyone and welcome to the Phileas Club. This is the show where we gather many, many people from around the world. We tell them we're, we're meeting on Skype at this, on this day, at this time, and they show up and we discuss the news. Except sometimes they don't show up and we just get Tom. How's it going, Tom? <laughs> I am the world! <laughs> so uh, we were yes. supposed... Yeah. I, I feel bad. Well, I, I don't feel bad, but, you know, I have done this to you before where I was supposed to show up and then I overslept and forgot and spaced out. Uh, so I was I was making sure that I didn't forget and that I was here this morning. Uh, and I was actually looking forward to, to chatting with the. Uh, with uh, Turkey, I, I you know I haven't I haven't had a chance to be on the show with him in a while. I always enjoy conversing with him, so I'm sorry he's he's absent. Yeah, so, you know that that Saudi guy. I always knew he was going to sabotage my my November show. You mean Saudi Taj? <laughs> Took me a second to to get it there. <laughs> Because <laughs> it um, didn't make any sense. That's yeah, why. <laughs> probably, possibly. Uh, he might show up during the show. It's happened to him oh, before. I hope so. But um, yeah, let, we're, we're not going to count on him. And we're going to have sort of a uh, mini um, mini show. It probably isn't going to be as long as it usually is. And uh, we're still going to have him uh, on the show somehow because we're at some point going to be talking about Turkey Day. Except it's, it's spelled <laughs> different. Except not Turkey Day, but... Yeah. Turkey. Turkey. So for those who don't know, his name is spelled uh, with an I at the end. And uh, it's very funny when I get emails uh, talking about uh, Turkey with an E-I because <laughs> I always think about the you know lovely stuffed animal you Americans mm. eat Thanks for Thanksgiving. Um, all right. So we'll, we'll get to Turkey Day at some point and the fact that that name annoys me to no end. But uh, first of all, there's serious things happening in the U.S. Uh, no, not in the U.S., in the world. And uh, I guess, so for the past few months, we've been talking regularly about uh, the Arab Spring, of course, and the revolutions and all of that. Um, and most of the important events in the world, uh, I feel, have been the continuation of that trend. Um, there's, of course, uh, the the uh, revolution sort of restarting in Egypt, uh, the Arab countries getting sort of tough on Syria more than I would have uh, expected them to. And I think that that sentiment is shared uh, in many places. And then there's the uh, Morocco, Moroccan, can you say that? Moroccan? Yeah, elections sure. um, that have uh, that are taking place this very weekend, and, and don't uh, forget the concessions in Bahrain and and Yemen. That's yeah, absolutely. Um, and and you know, leadership is uh, starting to get eclipsed by the constant, you know, the unrelentness. That's also a word I'm not sure exists. Unrelenting, um, think, unrelenting right. yeah. uh, resolve of the people. So uh, I don't know if we can, you know, let's let's go scattershot and discuss uh, whatever you think is appropriate amongst all of these um, topics, which are very much linked. Um, so 
I've been talking about this for a few months. Maybe you want to give us your uh, view on it and the way uh, it's been reported on in the U.S. in the past few weeks. Sure. I mean, when you add in the Occupy protests in the United States and also elsewhere around the world, it, it, the, the, the entire planet is sort of like in the game of civilization when you haven't been keeping <laughs> uh, your cities happy enough and all of a sudden they're all in revolt and production goes down. And I mean, it really is a real world representation of that. We have not been keeping people happy. Uh, there, there is bad uh, economics, uh, bad economic conditions and uh, repression, and people are, are done with it in all manners of life. So it's, well, it's uh, you know, you always ask me, how is it being reported in your part of the world? And I'm a horrible, I always respond that I'm a horrible representation of yeah, that. Everyone says I that. <laughs> don't watch television news at all. Not, not at all. Not one little bit. I don't read uh, local newspapers except for hyperlocal, like my neighborhood newspaper that tells me about like what's actually going to affect the water and and the local events and the mayoral election. Uh, so so I don't get that sort of local like oh this is what Fox News is saying about it sort of thing because I read the BBC and the Daily always, Telegraph always uh, and the Economist. What's you do? You do? <laughs> no, no, no. We always at some. You know, I guess it, you know it's the polarized uh, view in the U.S. and there's Fox well, News it's the and most everyone popular else. News, but yeah. It's the pop, most popular news channel. So if you if you were to say like how are how is something being reported in the U.S., you would look to Fox News and say, well, they're the most popular news channel. Mm-hmm. They're the one everybody watches for the most part. You know, whatever they're saying about it is going to be what most people in the U.S. hear. But I guess it is one, but the, don't they have the, – the way I, I see the situation, the news situation in the U.S. is that there's Fox, Fox News on one side, which usually have uh, quite an extreme view on things, and then there's everyone else. So sure, Fox News is one channel, is probably the most watched, but if you add up all the other ones, they might combine into something more um, you know, watched than Fox News alone. Is that – uh, you know, I, I don't know what the numbers are. And Fox News is not that extreme. The, okay. if, if you take Hannity and Beck, well, Beck's gone, but if you take their columnists out of the equation and just talk about their news, their mm. newscasts are, are, are probably from a perspective for sure. Uh, but if you were to just watch a normal Fox newscast of the straight stories of the day, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't call it extreme. Uh, really? And, and okay. I think no, no, no. I, uh, uh, it, does it have a does it have a slant? Sure, but but it's not it, it's not extreme. It's it's Hannity and Combs and and uh, mm-hmm. O'Reilly and those guys who are responsible for Fox News getting the so called extreme tag applied to him. I don't even think O'Reilly is all that extreme, really. He, he's he's firmly on one side. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's funny because we always, the way, I mean, I don't, obviously I don't have Fox News here, and so the way I know Fox News is all those, you know, two-minute clips, and right. and yeah, videos you see, that you are see being the, shared around. You see the, is, only yeah. the examples of the slant, yeah. and you never see the examples of, of the straight-ahead stories. I mean, and, all, all these well, folks working for Fox News used to work for CBS and NBC and ABC. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they're, not, they're not ideologues the way the commentators are. I guess, well, to be honest, it's not just that, though. It's whenever you talk to people, at least, you know, maybe I know some left, more left-slanted right. uh, people, but they, they usually people agree that Fox News is 
not the kind of channel that not even politically um, that doesn't represent their views, but that they think is not um, objective or doesn't even try to be objective. They try to push an agenda as a whole channel. So maybe, you know, it, it's not just... Well, see, I, I'm coming see. at it from a, a media studies sort of approach, which is mm. there isn't a channel out there that doesn't have a perspective. And it's very clear what Fox News's perspective is. But you, you use the word extreme, and I, right. don't, I don't think their perspective is extreme. Mm. Okay. They're, they're, That's they're, fair their perspective that they report on uh, is Republican. Mm. And uh, I think that's fair well, to say, but yeah. it's not necessarily Tea Party, uh, at least mm. again. And this is what's complicated about it. The Fox News news reporting versus the Fox News commentators is right. Glenn Beck. Oh, yeah, he's extreme. Mm. Absolutely. Uh, okay. And like I said, not not on the channel anymore. Uh, is O'Reilly extreme? Eh, you could you could make the argument. I don't really think he's that extreme, but he, he's he's far to the right. Uh, mm. For sure, he at least can be reasonable. You know, he can sit down with the president and and have a, a civil conversation. Right. I'm not sure that Glenn Beck would be possible uh, for for him to do that. So, yeah, I think Fox News as a whole gets that argument because they have entertained and encouraged those more extreme positions uh right. if you will uh the same way msnbc is it could be considered extremely left because they have co commentators uh who do shows like rachel maddow who are far to the left mm. but that doesn't mean that msnbc or mbc news is extreme uh, MSNBC, the, the msnbc news are... has a perspective that is uh slightly liberal it's just that the, the guys that are far to the to the left seem so much more reasonable well, if you if you're if your tend, if your uh, view, beliefs tend their way, of course yeah, they do. Of course, yeah, yeah, I understand. <laughs> but uh, that you know, it's it's. Uh, I guess we're veering off from the from the topic of the the topics of the month. But um, I, we were discussing socialism um, with with Scott last month with uh, Scott in Turkey, and I was trying to say, you know, the um, the fact that socialism has become such a bad word in the U.S. is very strange to us because socialism is not that far from, you know, there's a very clear distinction between socialism and communism. And we also consider communism crazy. Well, right. okay, maybe not, you know, it's, it might be a little bit different, but um, socialism is just, it's still a market-based uh, uh, economy and, and uh um, you know, they're, they're, they are very similar. The doctrines of socialism are quite close to the doctrines of capitalism as it is implemented in our Western countries. And the, the other thing that I wanted to mention at that point was it's strange to me that there's such a hatred towards um, left-wing views because – and maybe even you can put that argument in the – you know, you can get the argument the other way around, but because – Honestly, it's not like your when I say your you know no healthcare for example. If you 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 wanted to not have socialist healthcare, things would be better in the you know it. Oh God, I'm not even making sense. <laughs> so basically, the, the, in the healthcare debate in the U.S., it was like socialist healthcare is the uh, bane of existence and our way is so much better and you know it works better sure maybe you don't get get healthcare but you keep your money and the thing is even th that 
for me, that argument doesn't make sense at all, not just because it's unfair or, you know, we don't, it's not some kind of hippie argument that we have to be fair and help people. It's that your system of unabashed capitalism with no government interaction whatsoever, or at least, you know, what you would like to do, when I say you, I mean mostly Republicans in your country, um, is it doesn't yield better results. Like, healthcare costs a lot more in America than it does in European countries, and it doesn't have better results on the country's health. So even the argument that it would cost too much to the country doesn't really stand. And in that sense, I'm bringing it back to the argument about Fox News and, and the left slant in, on MSNBC. For me, when you look at the at the numbers and sort of, you know, as much as you can on at the facts, it seems that the reasonable argument is to usually to be made against the views that Fox News uh, defends and that the Republicans defend, um, at least in some areas. And I don't understand why it's being demonized so much. And maybe I'm, I'm not seeing the demonization of the right wing uh, on MSNBC, um, but it exists as well. Uh, do, do, does what I'm saying make sense? Or Yeah, well, the, there's a, a million things going on with what you're talking about. I mean, the reason socialism has become the, the naughty word uh, in the United States is because we lost the word communism. All, all the debates in the 80s were pretty much the same. As they are now, but with communism in place of the word socialism. But communism fell, so you couldn't use it anymore. And some brilliant uh, right-wing think tank uh, came up with the idea, hey, it's the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. And we've never been, you know, favor of socialism on our side anyway. So let's let's just push that one as basically the same thing. So they slotted that into the rhetoric. Uh, So that's just a rhetorical trick. That's going on, and a lot of people. So when they say socialism, they actually mean communism. Well, they don't mean anything. They mean the thing I don't like. (laughs) (laughs) When they were talking about communism in the eighties, they actually weren't talking about communism. They were talking about big, scary, insulting word that I'm going to tar my opponent with, Uh, and that's all they mean by socialism now. See, I don't because there are so many socialist aspects of the United States government, some of which are criticized by the Republicans and some aren't. Uh, the socialist aspect of supporting corn prices uh, and, and continuing to subsidize farming is very strongly supported by the Republicans. Uh, that is entirely socialist, but you would never yeah. hear them admit to that. It's, a, it, it's just rhetoric, rhetoric. It's not, mm. uh, it's not based in any kind of fact. Right. Hmm. I, and I, so anyway, I think what's going on in the United States is we have reached a fever pitch uh, that was made emblem, – it was emblematic in the super committee negotiations, right? Uh, we can't even get a committee set up with every advantage to come to an agreement. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't have to cut much money. Relatively I'm sorry, speaking, I, I, don't, I don't know what that is, the super committee. I'm sorry, that, let me back up and explain that. The super committee was set up by the president to cut 1.2, uh, I, I want to say Percent billion dollars, billion. but I think it was trillion dollars. Essentially, less than 5% of the, of the budget. 
to to cut to find savings and reduce the deficit by a very okay. small percentage. That must be billions then, because uh, and the uh, and the super committee was made of equal numbers of Republicans and Democrats. They would whatever they decided. Uh, would be put up to a majority vote, so there would be no chance of parliamentary maneuvers, no filibustering. Uh, basically, as long as uh, the Senate approved it 50%, it would get passed. And there's a very severe repercussion of them not coming to agreement, which is that automatic cuts across the board would happen, including everybody's favorites. So whether it was entitlements like Social Security, whether it was defense, uh, everything would get cut across the board. Nobody wants that. So they had all the motivation to succeed. They had all the, the pathway eased. And they really didn't even have to cut that much money, relatively speaking. They couldn't come to an agreement. The two sides just would not budge. When did uh, that the, happen? Uh, that happened over the weekend in the okay. U.S. So, so I'm sorry, not over the weekend. That happened on uh, Tuesday, I think. They finally agreed. They hit their deadline and said, we don't have an agreement. Uh, so now the automatic cuts go into place. The Republicans would not agree to even the slightest tax increase on anyone, including the richest. Uh, and the Democrats would not agree to any kind of restructuring or modification to entitlement programs, uh, no matter what. And so they got nothing done. They couldn't mm. compromise. And that, to me, is emblematic of the condition we are in, which is much worse than the 80s, in that the two sides just won't work with each other anymore and i think that has been encouraged by a system a two-party system that in my opinion is really just a one-party system with with two sides to it uh that pushes you to nominate and elect the extremes in each party rather than the moderates how did because i how does the system push you to to put someone who's extreme in place is it like the the way the the counties are divided or is it what's the yeah, reason it's, it's it's a couple things in my opinion and again this is just my opinion uh, sure sure the uh, the primaries that we have are institutionalized now so it used to be that any party could come together and nominate someone and put them on the ballot right But what we've done now is we've institutionalized the two, two main parties, Republicans and Democrats. It's very difficult, not impossible, it's very difficult for the other parties to get someone on the ballot. It is very – it is, is, is law in most states. You're talking about the presidential election. I'm not talking – I'm talking about Congress and Senate. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, but also the presidential election. The two parties are guaranteed the spot on the ballot. Hmm. They, don't have to, they don't have to do anything except tell – the you know the people you know tell the the folks who are the registrars here's here's who our party is nominating while other parties have to prove that they have enough support every election well, so well, they they the two main parties would get it anyway is it really like well does, yeah they would, would change but things in other words they and uh, the reason i bring this up is that what they've done now is created a primary system that is also institutionalized So the libertarians can go out and nominate their their party member however they want, whereas the the parties themselves have put themselves in a position where they're essentially running a governmental election, but only for people in their party. If you are a Democrat, registered as a Democrat, then you can vote for the Democratic member. If you're a Republican, you can vote the Republican. If you're an independent, uh, you can in some states choose which party you want to vote for in the primary but uh, but it's usually uh those, those people don't vote 
So what you end up with is the most extreme members, the most dedicated members of each party vote in the primaries. And that encourages the more extreme views to prevail in the primaries, which means you get the more extreme candidates tend to get nominated for the final election. And because and the reason I brought up the institutionalization of the two parties, you don't get third parties uh, giving any kind of realistic uh, competition to to possibly moderate the votes. You get you get nothing. On but the that's other not side. because that, it's institu- institu- institutionalized. Word. Yes. Is it? I mean, a, a third party could theoretically, if it gathered enough support, it could still have a candidate on the ballot. And oh, yeah, and they get- have candidates on the ballot. But because it's institutionalized with the two parties, nobody supports those other parties. It's just too difficult for them to gain enough acceptance to challenge. So all of the good talent in elections, all of the good talent for running for office, focus on the two parties because that pathway is easy. Uh, so that's, the think, pa- that's the pathway in. Do you think there's a... The, the, the country, maybe with that super committee, has reached a point where government is actually stuck and things just cannot happen? Or is it just a view of... Oh, things are horrible today. They weren't like that in the 80s. And, you know, we always think like that. No, that's a really good question. And and just real quickly, the other side, besides the primary system, which I think is also a a reason we have these extreme sides, is what you mentioned about the way the, the voting districts are created. Right. They're created politically. So they're not they're not created based on any kind of objective reality like population. They're carved up. So that all the Democrats are in one district and all the Republicans are in another district and they redistrict every every so often uh, to make sure that, you know, if a bunch of Republicans moved into one district, they redraw the borders, you know, to, to make sure that you're getting, again, the most extreme candidates for each side. Uh, put into office. We see this in the state of California in the inability of our of our House of Representatives here, our leg- our assembly, to do anything with each other because they are so extremely separated uh, in the state of California, and so and we're suffering from that. And now the United States is suffering for that. And and yeah, in some ways it is sort of a like, oh well, the parties have already always been at each other's throats and they've always been bickering, so that's nothing new. But I, I do feel like it's gotten worse. Uh, hmm. the, the, the two-party system's defense has always been it causes compromise. Uh, it, it, it may cause a lot of overheated rhetoric, but in the end, you end up with something moderate because the two sides will come to a compromise in the end. Lately, they haven't. On health care, now with the super committee, uh, there has, has been either one side just f- forcing their view through uh, or no compromise at all in the case of the super committee. So now, now what we're looking at is the two sides can't compromise, and they're not getting anything done. And yeah, that happened in the '90s uh, with Bill Clinton, and the government shut down briefly uh, because of brinksmanship. So it's not like it never has happened before, but it really does seem to me like the the older rhetoric was at least marginally, you know, respectful. Of the other mm. side. And, and right. now it's not. And maybe it was worse in the 60s and the 50s. 
Some people have told me, uh, you know, what during, the, during George Wallace's days in the United States, uh, there were some very racist campaigns and the civil rights movement was the same way. So it may be cyclical and we're just going through that period again. Right. Okay. And that is what the Arab countries have to look forward to in a you know, couple dozen years. <laughs> well, that, you know, honestly, the Arab countries really need to pay attention in setting up their government that they don't institutionalize these inefficiencies, uh, that, they, that they do a modern version of, of democracy with ranked mm -hmm. choice voting and, and uh, proportional representation. And, and part of that is why... The protesters are out in Tahrir Square because they're unhappy with the constitution that the military has put forward that gives the military way too much independence. Right, which too much control. And the, the, the thing we've been hearing uh, the most about uh, uh, the, the reignition of the revolution in Egypt is basically the people are just both disappointed and very worried that the... Um, The, the military is not going to abandon uh, the power that they've had. They, they were told, we're here for six months, and we're going to organize the elections, and then we're going to leave. And it's been nine months, so they're, they're basically back on, the, on Tahrir Square to make sure to get them out. To ju it's, just, it's as if uh, the events from a few months ago didn't even happen because, well, didn't get the... the, the Uh, protests weren't interrupted. They just want to make sure that the revolution wasn't uh, done for nothing because if the military stays in place, um, they just... It's, it's just as if uh, uh, Mubarak had stayed. And, right, uh, and, and another, his cronies being put in place in, in positions of yeah, power and all that. Yeah. Exactly. And, and one of the issues that they're unhappy about is the fact that they're... It's, it's, It was very uh, interesting to hear this. It's really about uh, age. One of the, the criticism that the the protesters are, uh, you know, are are telling us to explain why they're so unhappy. It's is that it's old people. They want it's the old people that were in place before, and they want young. You know, obviously different people, but the way they're they're explaining it is we don't want the old people. Um, so that, that was something that sort of resonated a little bit with me because in France, most of the time, I guess Sarkozy is kind of young. I, I don't know, man, you're getting older. You might need to switch sides soon. <laughs> I am. Um, well, you know, I think at this point I'm still young enough that I would be considered young in politics. Maybe not okay. in other areas though. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, so that, that was obviously it's been doing the, the, being uh, on the front pages for the past, I don't know, I guess, week or so when they started um, getting back into the Tahrir place. So that was... It's not like we're incredibly worried because at this point there has been some issues and some, uh, you know, the, the military has been using um, excessive force, I guess you can say, and there's been incidents. But... It seems like the military is sort of testing the waters here. And if they do get some pushback, they are going to maybe not go away, but at least give in to the demands of the protesters enough It, that they will yeah. be happy. The military in Egypt, and I am far from an expert 
on this, but from from my faraway position, it seems like they are very tactical. Uh, they sensed which way the wind was blowing in the spring and quickly sided with the revolutionaries, uh, with sure. the protesters. And that, that tipped the scales. But they knew that that was to their advantage. Now, uh, they pushed things a little too far, and you saw them immediately come out with an apology yeah. uh, for, for overuse of force, which I thought, well, mo- most militaries, if they're really you know, hell-bent on taking over, would have seen that as a sign of weakness. But the Egyptian military really seems to be like, okay, we, we pushed that a little too far. Let's back off. Uh, let's let's try to gain you know support for the elections. Uh, there is a, a, a an separate protest. I don't know how legitimate or how big it really is, but it's being reported that there's another protest in support of the elections. Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood is is not protesting. Uh, they're supporting well, the election. So it's that's, it's that's it's very less, tactical too. Well, yeah, exactly. But it's less overwhelming than it was in the spring, right? Because so, as you're saying, the military is doing what what sort of. Maybe the minimum, but still the required minimum to keep things in control. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it it's it, like, it's yeah. very tactical. Um, so I, I think this is birth pangs in a way uh, of a democracy. But the only thing that really concerns me is that the Constitution gives no civilian supervisory powers over the military at this point. Sure. And that that's has what to yeah. change. Yeah, and that is it's it's really complicated matter though because yeah. in in these countries, I mean at least in Egypt, the military also represents a large part of the economical the economic strength of the country. You know, they the, the a lot of the industries are owned by the military. So you can't really put them out of everything easily or even sure. quickly even if you you wanted to institutionally uh, it's very difficult to do, um, and and the other thing that you're mentioning is the uh, Islamist uh, parties, which are being very quiet all of a sudden, and everyone wants the election to take place uh, very soon as it was uh, planned, and and the the Islamist parties have gone very quiet and are just keeping their head down, their heads down, and and because they know that they will most probably get. Uh, the majority of the votes. And it's the same thing in Morocco, which has been reported on quite extensively uh, in France also in the past week, which is the everyone e- expects uh, the Islamist parties to be elected. And that's no surprise for, you know, for anyone, because in these no, uh, countries, it's, yeah. And, and one of the reasons, this is where, you know, we, there is sort of ambivalent feelings because... In in Egypt, one of the reasons why the military is holding on to the power and making things a little bit muddy is that they know that the Islamist parties will get into power once the elections actually uh, happen. And there were some terms in the constitution about the nature of the government. Is it, you know... Um, uh, uh, democratic is it? Uh, I, I can't remember the precise terms, but it was about whether. Basically, the crux of the issue was: could the Islamists, once in power, make it into an Islamist, you know, a, a Muslim government? And uh, in Egypt, uh, uh, yeah, a religious state, if right? You will. Exactly. Um, and and the, the 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 
military doesn't want that to happen. So in that sense, coming from at least from France, where we're all you know atheists, uh, uh, luddites, we we see this as okay. Of course, we want democracy and freedom. But on the other hand, if the the Islamists get into power, what's going to happen to that democracy and freedom? Now, it seems like the government should represent the population, and obviously the population is going to vote for them. So there's really nothing you can do. You can just hope that the the, the system is going to evolve and the democracy is going to evolve into something uh, more, you know, that that tends towards freedom rather than oppression. But it's still a concern, I guess, is what I'm saying. And it's it's being mentioned sort of in a hush-hush way in, in, even in the French media. You know, we're not coming out right saying, oh my God, is, Islamists are going to take over the governments in these countries. But it's still being mentioned with concern, I guess. I, I think in the United States, there are probably some outlets that are saying that Egypt is going to be taken over by Islamic extremists. Uh, I don't I don't hear it myself, but I see enough people in conversations on things like Google Plus and Twitter saying it that it must be out there. It must be being pushed right. out there because while it is a concern, it's it's not it's not far it's far from a foregone conclusion. And even if an Islamist party gets in control, that doesn't mean an extremist government is immediately taken hold. I mean, Morocco just elected an Islamist party. And everyone thinks that it was it was good because it's not the party that the king wanted, right? Yeah, so yeah absolutely. It, it, it just, you know, I mean, yeah, the Republicans and Democrats in the United States could be considered Christian parties because they espouse, you know, most of their candidates go to church and espouse Christian beliefs. But they're not extremist religious parties. Well, uh, I so think in the, in the case of – Yeah, I think in the case of the uh, these governments in the Arab countries, you would expect the parties to enact laws that are – you know, that, that follow principles of the Muslim faith. In that sense, they would be more religious parties than – I guess there are a couple you mean of issues. Like, uh, and, like some parties in the Western world want to uh, enact abortion laws based on their religious beliefs. That's what I, w- I was sure you were going to go to because it's accurate. But I mean, there are a couple of sticking issues in the West that are, yes, probably it's certainly more secular by, in the West. By, yeah, than, exactly. Yeah, uh, I, w- I will grant you that for sure. Mm. But uh, yeah, so the the the. the the feelings towards these are very ambivalent. So, because on one side we want freedom for them, but on the other side, if if by the freedom they they're, they acquire, they go and elect a sort of gov- oppressive government, or that could become oppressive, or at least restrict freedoms, it it's sort of difficult to accept as well. So, but but well, it's there's still- a secular example of this in Russia. In what way? In that they had the freedom to elect uh, a party, and they elected uh, a very restrictive party. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and that is obviously an issue. I guess this is – we come back to the Constitution and what that means for the the government that is going to be elected in the future. And that is one of the reasons why they are being very careful in Egypt about what they say for – uh, about religion in government and uh, on the state. Um, 
And I guess it, one of the things that was very surprising, not very surprising, but, but, but somewhat surprising, um, was the way that the Arab countries are dealing with uh, the issue in Syria. Because they are being very, I think, it's the, fr- I'm going to speak for myself here. It's the first real uh, memory that I have of the first time that I can actually say that the Arab League and the Arab governments are acting strongly on a matter that is not directly related to oil prices. Mm, mm-hmm. um, and, and it's entirely possible that I'm completely wrong and that I really don't know that much about it. But yeah. It's, it's prob- probable. <laughs> no, I, I don't mean that you but, are uh, wrong. I mean, like, I feel the same way <laughs> okay, when I start you. making pronouncements about this region, for sure. But, um, yeah, at least the way we're, we're discussing it here is it's almost like, okay, should we do something about Syria? Should we, like, what can we do? Like, economic sanctions? Should we do this or that? Of course, we're not going to send men uh, on the ground, although now this is sort of almost being discussed with a buffer zone with Turkey and things like that. And then all of a sudden we turn around and it's like, oh, so the Arab League is taking care of it. All right. Uh, cool. Excellent. Go ahead. Uh, it's your, you know, you do it. Yeah. Oh, I, I feel the same way as you as far as, you know, I, I, I don't want to pretend to understand all the undercurrents uh, and the stories behind the story in that region. But it seems to me that the various protests that began in the Arab Spring have had an effect on the governments in the Arab League. And it seems to me they're looking at Syria saying, you are a bad example right now. (laughs) Uh, We need you to keep your population under control because we don't want this to spread and get worse in our countries. Uh, So we're going to put the hammer down on you. Oh, so you think the reason is they want the, the revolutions to stop. So they're like, all right. You now you do what they say because they're not going to they're not going to go back home obviously, and yeah. then everyone's happy and we can you know keep doing what we do. I, I think there's an element. Obviously, it's it's a very complex motivation sure. that drives them. But I think an element of it is if you mess this up in Syria, it could spread and get worse. Well, and- where can it spread though? I mean, it's pretty much sure you have countries where you know you don't exactly have the freedoms. Uh, or the freedom of the Western world still sure. in the Arab countries. But it's not like you have horrible dictator tyrants at this stage, I don't think. You know, it's still more or less, no, maybe but, not democratic. I mean, you look, but yeah, you look at Yemen, you look at Bahrain, you, look, you, know, you look at some of these, these other countries that are now having their own protests. Look at Morocco. Uh, sure. they're, they're, they're mild by comparison with Egypt. But they're bubbling up, and Saudi Arabia is looking at its population, you know, with a kind of wary eye. Like you, you, you are, you have no reason to protest, right? <laughs> if only we had someone from that land to, I know, to inform I know. We us need on Turkey, that situation. Right All right, um, yeah. So I guess it's it's still you know the main conversation in most uh, newscasts, and it's it's been uh, the case for a few. Um, for a few weeks and a few months, obviously. But I think at this point we're reaching at least the view we have of Syria. It's like it's just a matter of time now. There's no way they can keep it keep it up for a long time, especially with the Arab League being so forceful on the issue. So 
And as you were saying, Bahrain and, you know, all the countries where you had a strong dictator have been more or less dealt with by their population. And Syria is the last one. And after that, so, of course, you're going to have elections with probably uh, Islamist parties. But it's we're reaching the end of that very tumultuous year. And the result is probably the best one we could have hoped for. I think. I suppose so, yeah. Uh, I mean, we could always hope for even better, but, um, but I'm not probably sure the how. best we could expect. Yeah, well, now, uh, you know, at this stage, I don't know really what we could have reasonably uh, hoped for other than this. Utopias. It, <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's, yeah, that's pretty much the, the, the largest uh, part of the uh, of the news. Um Well, in the United States, the large part of the news is how great Black Friday was for the economy because people spent a lot of money and how the NBA has now reached an agreement and may start playing their basketball season again starting on Christmas Day. All right. So you have to explain this to me. Um, I've sort of been hearing about the fact that the NBA was basically disbanded because uh, players were being – that's the way I I sort of – glanced at the news and the way I understood it. Players yeah, were being super greedy and the NBA started negotiations and when they saw it was going nowhere, they were like, okay, you don't want to do it? Fine. You're, we're disbanding. That's it. No more NBA. Bye. Uh, well, no. Think To put it in terms you can understand, think <laughs> of the NBA as the metro uh, and the players in the NBA as the people of Paris uh, okay. and the owners of the NBA and the, and the workers came to a disagreement, and there was a general strike. Okay. Because that's what happened. It was a strike. They basically, I don't know if it was a lockout or a strike. I, I honestly haven't really followed it that closely. Okay. Uh, but they suspended the season. They said, well, fine. We can't, we can't come to an agreement on your contract, so we're, we're not going to have the season. What, uh, what did they want, though? They wanted more money or... It's always what they want. They okay. they want better terms, mm. not not even just more money. It's it's essentially the players want. Uh, again, I'm the it's the worst person to be asking about this <laughs> because I haven't followed it one little bit. All I know is the season got suspended. Okay. but I've followed enough other sports leagues that I can guess that what these are always about is the owners want more restrictions on what the players can do. They want salary caps. They want things that keep the the price of the players down. And the players always want more free agency, the ability to change their teams whenever they want and, and shop around and get the best deal, you know, and, and drive up the price. Uh, and, and there's all kinds of other side things about, you know, negotiations for rights and this and that. But it always centers around free agency for the most part. Uh, and, and when they don't agree, either the players strike or the owners lock them out and say, well, if we can't agree on a contract with the union, then... Forget it. We're, we're so, not going to do the season. Okay. Obviously, we're not big sports guys, uh, or I guess not uh, b- basketball guys. But the question I can ask is, how is that? It's it's a it's a strike. It's workers going on strike to enforce their rights. And yes, the the the, the company has to shut down because of that strike, but. It seems like a very socialist thing to do to get it back to where we were at the beginning. Um, yeah, well, it's a lockout in this case. I just looked it up. Okay. Uh, which means, you know, the, the players were threatening to strike. 
but they couldn't come to agreement on a contract. And so th- this has been more common recently in, in the arena of sports, which is the league will then actually lock the players out and say, well, fine, if we don't have a deal, you can't play. But I guess my question was, are people siding with the players or is it regarded as a horrible, you know, communist action or is it? Yeah, usually, usually people, um, people side with the owners in these things because the players are seen as greedy. And that's Mm. only because the, you know, you have those players that are making millions of dollars uh, and, and people are like, oh, well, they're so greedy. You know, I want them to play now with the, the trends to be less strike and more lockout recently. I don't know if the tide has turned. What's the difference? I mean, okay. A, a lockout, lockout means, means that the owners are the ones responsible for the cancellation of the season. Okay. Uh, a, a strike means that the players just won't show up. The owners are like, we'll, we'll play the season, but the players won't show up. And then sometimes you see replacement players, and they try to do a season without the, the players. But lockout, which is what happened with the NHL last year and what happened with the NBA this year is the owners saying, well, no, we're not going to hold the season until we, we get mm. this settled. And is it in the case of the players when the owners end up saying, all right, you won, you know, if that's what you want, lock out. Do they go, oh, crap, they actually did it. Okay. Yeah, it's a, it's uh, a, nego- it's a negotiating tactic. Exactly. Mm. Okay. All right. And uh, I guess the other thing, uh, which actually... There's an interesting worldwide uh, consequence of this, Um, or at least I guess we saw it in France, is uh, Turkey Day, Turkey with EY, Um, which the first thing I want to ask you about is do people actually call it, seriously call it that incredibly ridiculous and annoying name of Turkey Day? Yeah, I'd say less than 30%. Of the time, you'll hear someone sort of jokingly say, have a good turkey day. Okay. It's so, called so Thanksgiving it's by so most people. But yeah, it's a very, it's a, it's a nickname. And people call it turkey day as a joke, like, ha ha, it's turkey day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. that's fine then. Okay, in that case, I am not annoyed as It's much. not the official name. And, <laughs> and most people say happy Thanksgiving. Okay. They don't say happy Uh, you know so this is this is something that you became aware of in in france they were they were covering thanksgiving or no 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 actually well we've you know we all obviously we've always known that you guys in the u.s have this holiday called thanksgiving and interestingly enough it's probably largely due to the fact that every single tv shows portrays it Somehow, especially uh, sitcoms, you always have the Thanksgiving, you know, so we actually know about that tradition. We would know that you have Thanksgiving and it's a holiday, you know, where you eat turkey. But we actually know a lot more of the social significance of that of that holiday because of the TV shows. Uh, Interesting. I remember seeing, you know, Friends or other shows like that where it actually was very um, accurately – well, I don't know about accurately, but what seemed accurate uh, in the portrayal of – It is it is like a documentary. No. <laughs> no, but you know the fact that it's the time where you get with your friends and you get with your family and everything stops. That's another thing. You know, it's like – I'll get back to that. But you get with your family and you enjoy this long, very long weekend. And it's a sort of uh, universal feeling, almost 
as much, if not more, than Christmas, where everyone seems to be on board with that, and you all do the the Turkey Day thing. Um, yeah, well, because there's no religious uh, tie to Thanksgiving, right. even even though it's actually very religious in its roots, because it's it's commemorating the the pilgrims who were religious uh, religious people fleeing Europe because of religious oppression, and they're they're landing in America and being helped out by the native population to. To have a you know a, a fall harvest meal that that's what it's supposedly commemorating. Yeah, how, how but that work out for the native population again? Yeah, I I, as I call it, the reason for the season: ill-prepared colonists taking advantage of the natives and giving them smallpox. <laughs> but uh, but that's you know that's neither here nor there in my example, which is Thanksgiving can be whatever you want. If you, you, no one condemns you for, for not remembering the reason for the season, as long as you're thankful for something, that's all that's required of you. So it's, it's, it's a very open holiday. And I think in some ways, because of that, it's a, it's almost more popular, not more popular than Christmas by any stretch, but I don't, I don't know. It's, it's, it's more of a coming together feeling Mm. than Christmas, which has lately become this sort of, debate about well don't say christmas say holiday oh yeah. but now you're part of the war on christmas you know it's it's become very politicized it seems like everyone loves thanksgiving i guess is my yeah. impression right yeah. no no one says oh well don't wish me a happy thanksgiving i'm jewish <laughs> you know that's it's thanksgiving yeah. for everybody it doesn't no, matter usually... who you are muslim atheist jewish uh furry doesn't matter <laughs> thanksgiving is for all I guess the, the, the only people that would say don't wish me a happy Thanksgiving would be maybe the French or maybe everyone who's not well, American. Yeah, right. But <laughs> but you also wouldn't do that. It's, it's like, oh, well, what? you're not from You here. don't think I'm worthy of your wishing me a Thanksgiving? <laughs> I'm very thankful for you, okay. Patrick. Um, and now I've but, offended you by being thankful. <laughs> but um, the other thing uh, – there are two other things. But the other thing is it seems like I only – this year, I've realized how big, not just a celebration it is, but also a holiday. Everything stops on the, you know, the, the Wednesday before. And it's basically almost like a, a Christmas, a month before Christmas. Yeah. And, I, you know, I know that a lot of people often say, oh, the French, they're always on holiday. They never work, blah, blah, blah. It's like, you have two Christmases. What are you talking about? <laughs> well, yeah, that, that's the little we get. Well, you get the entire month of August. You know, we, we get two days at the end of November. So we come don't on, get let, the give us a break. Month of August. We, and you, you get vacation in August, don't you? No. Well, I mean, we, not in August, but like how many weeks of vacation do you get? Most companies give employees around two weeks of vacation a year. And, but that's when you first get into the company, doesn't it? Grow no, that's by- – that's, Pretty much. I mean, sometimes it's it's less than that when you first get into a company, but it's it's around two weeks. If you've been with a company for a long, long time, you might get up to three weeks. Wow. Okay. And is the week of Christmas separate from that, or if you want to be off for the week of Christmas, you usually to- you're given the 25th off uh, separate okay. from your vacation. Sometimes you're given the 24th off, uh, and you're given the first off. Okay. So there, yeah, there's there's some holidays. Oh, yeah, but that's yeah, that's bank holidays. It's different. I mean, you don't get like a week off during Christmas. You know, during most companies the no, absolutely not. Okay, then fine. CNET, You're... CNET. Yeah, and I don't know if CBS has continued this since I left, but CNET shut down between Christmas and New Year's because it saved them money. How so? 
because there really isn't a lot of work that is done in that week. Mm. And so they realized, well, if we just tell everyone to stay away, we can, we can lower the heat. We, we reduce the electrical footprint. Uh, and we save so much money on, on, on facilities that just give the, give mm. the stuff away. People work from home. It's not, we don't see a productivity dip. So, oh, so you, they st you're not coming into the office, but you still work from home. Well, it's one of those things where, like, you know, we're shut down between Christmas and New Year's, so don't come into work. But, of course, stuff happens, you know, and people answer emails. They're not working right. per se, but work yeah. just kind of never stops. And since there's probably not a lot of news in that department, maybe. Yeah, and the, the, mm. well, the, news, the news people do come in they have to uh because mm. because you know the news has to be changed every day but sure you know the sales people the the facilities people the you know the the folks that are in the non-daily parts of the content uh system so, all the engineers and programmers and all sure. that yeah so effectively you only get two weeks a, a year that's horrible You probably get effective three weeks with all the bank holiday oh yeah stuff. but that those are you know separate because uh, we right. also get those Um, oh yeah, no. There's there's usually only there's two weeks of vacation that you can pick, and there's about a about a week of bank holiday. But see, there's I have to be a little bit front and defend our system though, uh -huh. um, because honestly, only two weeks is really really low. As you were saying, you know, we get five weeks um, plus all the bank holidays and other stuff even. Um, but on the other hand, we still have. A lot of you know we still have the same amount of work to do, so there are many studies that show that the French are actually more productive in these hours are these that French they do studies? work. <laughs> no, well maybe, <laughs> but um, it's I mean there is more. You know we still have the same amount of work to do. It's not like yeah. magically a car doesn't get you know gets uh, built faster because you have less. Uh, you have more vacation. You still have to do that amount of work. Um, I don't know. I guess there is... I'm going into assumption land, so I'm going to stop. Um, well, and I'm gonna... the dirty little secret is that you give people time off, but you don't reduce their workload, right? I mean, we were all talking about that earlier this week at Twit mm. when we did two extra episodes of Tech News Today and we recorded iPad Today early and like all of our Thursday and Friday shows we recorded them earlier yeah. in the week so essentially yeah. I mean it wasn't quite the same amount of work as we would do but essentially we weren't we were just stacking up all our work at the beginning of the week so that we could take two days off yeah exactly that's the kind of thing I'm talking about and it's the, sure it was it it wasn't the same shows and and you know TNT was like you had the uh, uh email I mean uh, incoming special and uh, stuff like that but it, it's you still manage to produce the same amount of shows so you effectively I mean I guess my if I had to put this into the form of a question it would be is there it's I'm answering my own question because I know the answer there's a lot of stacking of slacking going on in every office in the world and sure. I'm guessing that probably in France since we have let's say I don't know 20 or 30 percent more holidays we get 20 or 30 percent less slacking because we have work to do so no you just you just organize your slacking better <laughs> and have it have it done on official days off. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I also think there's there's something to be said for the mental break of knowing you have days off. Mm. You know, it refreshes your mind. 
much better than sort of just slacking off slowly where you, you, you kind of feel slightly guilty that you you know it's it's better to give people time off and let yeah. them refresh their brain even if they have to do a lot of work to prepare for it uh anytime i go on vacation when i come back i'm i'm absolutely in a different state of mind than I was when I left. Sure. Because I've given my brain a chance to reset. And I, I think that's undervalued by I companies. Think- the U.S. has this Protestant work ethic still, this tradition of if you're not working, you're lazy. Yeah. And I think what you're proposing is more holidays for the workers in the U.S., and that's a socialist uh, view. So you draw your own conclusion. Well, it depends. Do I want the government to mandate the holidays or am I saying that businesses should determine on their own that it is in their best interest to give their employees well, more days off? I'm sure it's the case now. I'm sure if your employer wanted to give you five weeks of holiday, they would. They could. It's not like the government would well, come you know, in and C- say, CNET that's actually illegal. was. CNET was very unusual in that respect. Like I mentioned, they shut down between Christmas and New Year's, which a lot of companies... In fact, when CBS came in, they immediately said they weren't going to do that, and everyone complained, uh, and they relented. <laughs> I like the, the microsecond pause between everyone yeah. and complained. It's like everyone complained. Yeah, and, and so they reinstituted it. They said they'd review it each year to see if it was still worth it. Mm. But what CNET also did that CBS got rid of CNET would give you an extra week of vacation if you kept your vacation balance less than 40 hours. And again, the reason for that was it cost them money on their balance sheet to have all this vacation because when you quit or if you were laid off, they had to pay out all that vacation. Right. So it was in their best interest, again, to encourage you to keep less than 40 hours on the books. Mm. So you, uh, you would get three weeks of vacation a year at CNET if you kept your vacation balance less than 40 hours at the end of every year. Oh, interesting. And see, I guess I'm getting back to the it doesn't cost, it's not more efficient to do it like this because it's not like your country has a perfect budget balance you know you're also heavily in debt and you also have a budget that is absolutely not balanced so i'm not sure that's the the government i mean vacation time doesn't necessarily have an effect on on how responsibly the government spends its money i i'm not sure it it doesn't because you pay if you take more vacation you get you know it's a more taxing uh, environment for the companies because they get less you know i'm sure that what the people would what the um, right wing would say is if you give people more vacation you would get less work done and it would be more costly for the companies isn't that the reason you don't get more vacation yeah but i don't think that has to do with the budget deficit uh, it's a pretty indirect line from one to the other yeah. I, I suppose you could say that giving more vacation might improve the economy because it would improve productivity or vice versa well uh, that's exactly and, what and it if is, you have a better it? economy you have but the, frankly the budget deficit is caused by uh the recession in in 2008 and and a limping economy i don't i don't know that What I'm saying is it's not like it's not like because of – of course, it's easy to single out this one uh, thing. But I'm I'm talking as a general societal direction that you're taking, which is more to the right than what we do in in Europe and in France in general. Um, It's not like society is working 
so much better that this is a clearly superior way of approaching. Oh, sure, sure. You no, know, it doesn't that, prove it yeah. the other way. Absolutely. That's, that, I, I mean, guess the that's argument my point. is We're that roughly, we have – the argument is that the United States is more productive and more innovative than other countries. We could argue whether that's true or not, but that, that's usually the assertion is, well, look at the United States. We have the most efficient, productive, and innovative mm-hmm. society – uh, and it's because of our low tax rates, our vacation right. policy, our work ethic, blah, blah, blah. You know, it goes on and on and on. I guess That's it, usually the way that argument runs. Yeah, I guess it's, it's pretty easy to see the validity in the argument of at least innovation. I mean, I've had very long discussions with – I can't remember if that's happened in, in, uh, in this show. But uh, discussing the, the innovation factor of the U.S. and the fact well, I, you that – You know why I think that is. Uh, sure, go ahead. Uh, because all of the crazy people left Europe and came <laughs> to the United States. And crazy people are more innovative by nature because they're willing to think like crazy people instead of rationally and say, oh, well, that's, that would never be possible. You know, they, they're mm-hmm. like, yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm manic. And then they actually, in some cases, make it happen. In other cases, they end up in an institution. But, you know, <laughs> Europe sort of had this selection bias where all the risk takers left to go explore the new world. And so you end up with a with an entire country full of people who are willing to take risks. It's yeah, I guess it's possible. I think the the reason I would give if there is one would be more the enabling of the it's two things. It's easier to ena- to to go ahead and do something in the US that's I think true and also um uh, it's necessity. In f- in France and in maybe other social – it's a combination of several things. But in France, if you're, not, uh, if you're not providing for yourself, the government will probably provide for you in different ways. So, of course, you're not going to go to the extreme that you're actually going to need to get money for everything you do. But you have the, cush- the cushion that mm-hmm. will – you know, in, in, in the U.S., if you are laid off and you don't uh, have health insurance, then you're really, really uh, in trouble. So you have to go out and do something maybe you wouldn't have done otherwise or do something daring. Um, I kind of feel like that argument can work the other way, too, though, which is well, if theoretically, I have yes. a safety net, yeah. I may quit my job to pursue my crazy idea. Because I know I have yes, a safety but, net. But if I don't, I'm going to stay in my mm. boring job doing my boring things because I'm worried that I would get laid off and lose my health insurance if I yeah. risked it all to pursue my crazy idea. I think in theory that's true. I think, But in, in reality, it doesn't really happen. I mean, it's very easy to do generalizations, but I seem to, to, to see that in reality things usually don't work out that way. Um, and I think there's another aspect which is very important, which I, I sort of s- started really seeing uh, when I uh, started dating the girl who is now my fiance, who is Finnish. It's the importance of Protestant uh, work ethics, which are a constant drive for you to not abuse the system. There are things mm-hmm. like in in France when you're laid off, and I'm sure you know other less honest French people would tell you that that's not true, but trust me, it does happen very often. When you're laid off, 
you take it easy for a few months. You know, you have a year and a half of un- unemployment benefits, sometimes more. Um, so you're not going to start looking for work immediately at all. You're, it, it, you can take three, six, nine months to relax and maybe try something, but mostly, you know, stay on your couch and play the PlayStation. And um, in, in, at least in, in Scandinavia, it seems like that would be almost an unthinkable sin or something. And uh, they, when you're laid off, oh, my God, you find a new job now. Right. But, so, and they've got a huge safety net. Oh, yeah. Even bigger, even larger than ours. I mean, in, in Scandinavia, they, have, they are even more socialist than we are in France. And I was wondering, why does it work so much better? And I think one of the elements of the answer is that Protestant work ethics thing. So. Yeah. It's a, well, it's a, cult- it's a cultural thing and I, I i don't know if it's because of weather but more <laughs> the more northern you are in the in the northern hemisphere of, of the world anyway the more northern you are uh the more likely you are to to have that that driven work ethic and the more southerly you are uh the more likely you are to have a, a you know sort of embrace life and enjoy things uh ethic. yeah and it's i guess it does make sense right it's like you're if you don't you know work too hard in in i'm gonna say spain but it's hard and you're no but you're comfortable anyway you know it's hard you're gonna (laughs) you don't have to worry about putting provisions aside for the winter exactly whereas in in the north of finland if you do that come winter comes and you die frozen and uh hungry so (laughs) you know it's but it's very difficult for me to accurately judge which one is better because I really, really think that it's important for everyone to enjoy their life. And I don't think that right. even if you have a job you love, which is my case, it's, it's, if, if I just had two weeks out of the year where I could do something different on that day, I think I would be somewhat unhappy. And is, worth, is, is life really worth living if you're not going to be happy? It's like that calorie diet where it's like, hey, you'll live a long time if you restrict your calories to this really low amount. And you're like, yeah, but I'll be miserable. I'll be hungry all the time. <laughs> I guess it is. And on that note, I'm going to McDonald's. Um, all right. L- last thing I, I wanted to mention about uh, Turkey Day. Boy, we veered off of that uh, topic quite a bit. Well, this Phileas Club is not Turkey Day because we <laughs> haven't had turkey on. However, in France, uh, we did have Black Friday, kind of. And oh, it was oh, really? A, well, not exactly. So here's what's happening. You obviously have had Black Friday forever. Pretty much. I mean, it's, it's really only been in the past decade or less that it's mm-hmm. blown up as huge as it is in the U.S. now. But, but it's always been there. It's always, the, the day right. after Thanksgiving has always been a, a shopping day. And we didn't really, you know, that's the kind of thing that we don't even, we didn't even really know back then, you know, 10 years ago. And the reason why we're so aware of it now is that you have a lot of very successful uh, companies that have web stores. And they do these promotions in the U.S. And, of course, it's a somewhat centralized uh, administration of the store so they're like okay we're gonna gonna have that much off of these and these items in the in the store in the u.s let's do the same everywhere 
So we actually have lots of pretty cool deals going up on the websites um, in France too. So we effectively have a portion of your Black Friday without, I guess, the portion that doesn't involve, you know, well, being noir. trampled. Um, I'm sorry? It'd be noir, right? <laughs> Vendredi noir. Oh, I feel like that's... <laughs> Yeah. Vendredi Noir, I feel like that's something, some important date in history or something. <laughs> well, it is fun. Not... Well, Black Friday is named after the, the the Black Friday in the stock market crash, which I always oh, find Oh, well, hilarious. there you go. I there mean, you that's, go. That's what Black Friday originally refers to is, is the stock market crash in the 20s. Yeah, 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 exactly. I knew that rang a, rang a bell. Yeah. So that's fa- a fantastic name. So explain to me this. How do – how is it – how does it make sense for someone to get up at four in the morning, be in the queue with a million other people, get trampled when the doors open for $30 off a $300, you know, vacuum cleaner? It doesn't. It goes back to what I said about all the crazy people left other parts <laughs> of the world that came here. Uh, I mean, and it's not even four in the morning anymore. It's midnight. God. Tons of stores were open at midnight. In fact, I saw the madness beginning to descend on Thursday night. I was up sitting on the couch next to Eileen. She's looking online, seeing these sales at one of the clothing stores she likes and realizing, oh, they're, they're right down the highway, just a couple stops, and they're opening at midnight. You know, and I was like, are you thinking of going? She's like, I don't know. Like, it, it, it just you start to get kind of caught up in the hype. Mm. Like, oh, but it's 40% off. And then, of course, she very logically started to realize, well, wait a minute. You know, I can get the same deals by ordering online. Yeah, I got to pay a little shipping, but I don't have to deal with the madness of all these people, you know, going crazy. Mm. Uh, But it it sucks you in. I think think it's not so much the savings and the deals as it is the spectacle of it, right? I mean, you, you get to tell the story of how you were there with all these people. It's like an event. And you get to talk about, and I got this, you know, amazing. I got this $5,000 TV for $2,000 or, you Is know, it, I got this. So are the deals really that good? Because if it's, if it's that, these kinds of prices, I can understand it. If it's, well, you know. You know what they do is they'll, they'll make a crazy deal. Like a $5,000 $5, TV was a horrible example. A $1,000 okay. TV for $200. I, I saw that deal. Okay. But they'll and have, they have five of, of them. them yeah, right? Exactly. So only, and that's why people go and get in line because you have to be the first in to mm. get the five of those that they have on hand. It's all loss leader, right? They have these limited deals sure. that get you in for the, the more regular, like 20%, 30% off everything in the store. Mm. That seems like something I would never do, but uh, who knows? Have you ever done it? You know, when I was a kid, we always went to Famous Bar, which was a department store in St. Louis. <laughs> Very they opened at yeah. the, un- un- the crazy hour of 7 a.m., uh, <laughs> and we would go and go to the – they'd take one whole floor and turn it into like an animated winter wonderland – uh, so as little kids, we'd go through there and we'd we'd see, visit Santa at the end and get some toys, and then my mom would go shopping. So okay. that that was that was Black Friday in the seventies and, and early eighties. Uh, now that it's become this crazy thing, I I've never done it. I've okay. never done the like go to the store at four in the morning. I've never gone out. I I've, don't think I've even gone shopping on Friday in probably twenty years. 
on, on that Friday, that particular Friday. And yeah. yesterday, I I set out not to spend any money all day because we didn't leave the house except to take the dogs for a walk. I did spend $4 because I got to the end of my uh, Walking Dead comics that I've been meaning to catch up on. And so I had to spend, I had to buy the new one. Um, that, I think so I made one fair. online purchase that was in no way related to the sales. But yeah, I, I <laughs> was I it like a rule you, you said to yourself, I will not spend a single dollar on anything. And nah, if we don't have it any, that quite the, it wasn't quite that dogmatic. Okay. I just, I, I planned ahead, bought groceries so that we wouldn't have to go anywhere. We could just like chill at home, which we never get to do. Uh, and then I realized in the morning, like, Hey, you know what? I won't have to spend any money today, hmm. but then I did. <laughs> okay. I had to spend two ninety nine for the new Walking Dead. What did you think, by the way? Oh, I, I love that comic. Um, the comic far exceeds the television show. In my oh, opinion. thank you, sir. I've I've had a. I actually I think I commented on a comment you did on uh, on Facebook or something. Yeah. Um, a few weeks ago, I made a comment on Google Plus. About the fact that the Walking Dead, why well, we're veering away from uh, the Felix Club, but that's okay. We'll keep it short and then we're done. Welcome to the TV Licious. <laughs> but um, I said that the, the, the first season of the TV show was great, except for the last two episodes. So basically, two thirds were really good. And the, the, the beginning of the second season really was basically like a subpar zombie movie. On TV, yeah. and that was so, so, so much, you know, so not as good as the, the comic, which is incredible that I was uh, inviting everyone to read the comic and because it was so far better than, uh, than, than the TV show. And Veronica uh, Belmont uh, was very angry with me because she loved the TV show. <laughs> And uh, Robert Justin Young uh, also commented that he loved it and that he, he said, uh, you know, Kirkman was saying that it was so much better like this because he didn't kill Shane. And, oh, sorry, spoiler. Um, he didn't yeah. kill Shane and it was so much better because it would allow him to develop, blah, 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 whatever. And now, a few weeks later... Uh, Robert Justin Young is saying, oh, the TV show is horrible. I love that you're horrible. calling him Robert Justin Young. Yeah. Because <laughs> he always Young. calls other people the wrong name. <laughs> he does? Yeah. Um, it's, it's Justin Robert Young. Justin – oh, sorry. I, yeah, because – see, but don't, I don't, don't let that stop you. Keep calling I, yeah, him Robert. Okay. Robert, hey, Bob. So Bob Young um, <laughs> <laughs> is – he posted something on Google Plus or something and he was saying – you know, the show is incredibly slow and it's horrible and I, I don't like it all that much anymore. And now I'm starting to like it a little bit more because it's coming back to what the comic is. So yeah. I'm happy to I see that. I felt like this last movie. episode, last Sunday, they finally started to feel like the comic book mm. again. Because it's really a, a comic about people, not really about zombies. Right. So, and the TV show was becoming about an adventure thing. Not a a a relation thing. Well, the relate it was all about relations, but they were really boring relations that, yeah. w that were entirely predictable. Not yeah. not groundbreaking. Like okay, different people have been thrown together under extreme stress, and how will they react? Which is what I like about the comic. Agreed. 
And uh, yeah, so I think I'm, I'm actually uh, thinking I should have a discussion with Bob, Bob Young, um, about <laughs> this because I think the we should have you on frame rate. Brian Brushwood and I uh, talk about Walking Dead pretty much every week. Oh, sure. You know, I've actually never listened to frame rate, so I'll go and uh, download a couple of episodes. Yeah, um, I don't know if we, I don't think we did it this past episode because we ran short on time, but mm-hmm. we will do what's called the spoiler zone at the right. end of frame rate so that anybody who hasn't watched the series can stop and not get spoiled. And then we'll mm-hmm. just go into what we thought of the, the recent episodes. Cool. Oh, I'd love to be on that show. Um, all right. I guess this is going to be the end for uh, this show. It, it was slightly. Um, shorter than our usual shows, but not not by much. Um, but it was still very enjoyable to have you on, Tom. Thank you so much for waking up early after only a few days after the giant stuffing of Turkey uh, <laughs> festival. Um, can you tell me and the fine folks listening uh, where they can find you when you're not on this show? Sure, uh, I'll be at home. <laughs> No, uh, my website is tommerritt.com, two R's, two T's. Uh, so there's a, a page there where you can find all the shows that I do if you're, you're curious uh, and want to subscribe or, or just check them out, like Frame Rate, for instance. Uh, I'm, the big one that I'm doing now that I'm really enjoying is with uh, Robert Justin Young called FSL Tonight. Uh, it's probably not that appealing. Oh, is to, it your your uh, fantasy league? Thing? It's a fa- it's a it's a sports league cre- uh, made up of uh, teams in the world of sci-fi and fantasy. So Mordor, Alderaan, Coruscant, oh, wait. Kronos. I'm sorry, Vulcan. you're going to have to detail that a little bit more. What? Uh, so yeah, you have the, like fantasy people playing yeah, football. Yeah, so you know, Luke Skywalker hasn't been getting played for the Alderaan Rebels uh, recently. It's been a lot of controversy and the ownership just made a change, fired Obi-Wan Kenobi, struck him down, and uh, Yoda is taking over Skywalker's training uh, <laughs> and managing the team. I don't think I need to add anything to that. Yeah. Uh, and That's the at one- fsltonight.com. So tommerritt.com and uh, on Twitter uh, go to Tom Merritt on Twitter and you can find out what my actual Twitter name is there. The mystery will be uh, very <laughs> enjoyable for you. Uh, well, thank you very much. And uh, to everyone listening, I will uh, thank you also for listening to the show. And I will tell you that we will be back at the end of December for a new one. So please tune in. Talk to you soon. Bye. for a trusted property insurance partner to help your business grow and stay resilient. FM Global uses science, data, and research to help you make informed decisions. By working together, FM Global can help you grow your company with confidence and deliver the protection and expertise you need to thrive. We're also here to help you navigate the complex world of ESG. We'll work with you to identify and mitigate risks related to natural disasters and offer solutions that contribute to a more sustainable future. Let's prepare to prosper.